Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, this is John Donatich. I'm the director of Yale University Press, and I'm very pleased uh, to welcome Professor Leo Damrosch uh, to our Yale podcast. He is the author of the newly published biography of Jonathan Swift, which I'm very pleased to congratulate him, um, has received um, amazingly good reviews and, and, and made it onto a couple of uh, year-end best lists, uh, both in the U.S. and the U.K. So welcome, Leo. Thank you very much. Have you been pleased with the, with the way the book has been received? Delighted, overjoyed. I've never had a book have such totally favorable reviews. Excellent, excellent. The the, the other books that we, we know you from uh, are the biography of uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and uh, Tocqueville's discovery of America, of course. Uh, right. What drove you to write this biography of uh, Jonathan Swift? Well, I hadn't really thought of doing it until my wonderful editor at Yale, um, Jennifer Banks, uh, got in touch with me out of the blue and suggested it. Mm-hmm. And when I started thinking about it, I thought I would love to know more about Swift. He's a very mysterious character as well as a great writer. Uh, I've taught some of his works my whole career, but uh, there was a lot still to learn. And it ended up being the most enjoyable book I think I've ever written. Uh, you, you called him uh, mysterious. What, what, what did you uncover? Well, one of his friends called him hieroglyphic. Um, he he liked to sort of um, play roles to um, perplex people with aggressive insults that turned out to be sort of inverted compliments. Uh, if you got inside his circle of trust, and he had quite a large circle of friends, um, then he would do anything for you and was in no way a tricky or um, unreliable person. But to the world in general, he liked to wear a mask. And the most important relationships in his life were mysterious, even to his close friends. Hmm. What, what, what sort of relationships? Well, um, there was a nine-year-old girl who was the daughter of the housekeeper at the country estate where he got his first job as private secretary to a retired diplomat. And he became her tutor. And when she grew up, she became his lifelong closest friend, hmm. uh, moved to Ireland to be close to him when he settled back there. Uh, and some of their friends were convinced they were secretly married, but just as many friends were convinced they were not. Hmm. And it's quite an extraordinary thing to be able to keep as mysterious as that. Yeah, I'll say. Did, what's the, um, you've obviously read the other biographies of, of Swift uh, that were previously published. And um, what holes did you find? or what, what was the nature of your research that allowed you to have new insights into the life? It's more new interpretations than new discoveries, because after 300 years, there won't be many surprises. Uh, Though there were a number of things that have been overlooked for one reason or another that have been in print, but in obscure places. Um, The gold standard, I suppose, was long thought to be Irvin Aaron Price's three-volume, 2,000-page biography of Swift, which is very, very meticulous about the details of his public life. But very cavalier in interpreting his personality in his private life. Uh, Aaron Price had a what now looks like <clears throat> extremely dated Freudian view of personality, which allowed him to state as facts what were just wild guesses on his part. And because the book is so substantial, people assumed he might be he must be right about Swift's character and motives as well. So in fact, it seemed there was an enormous hole to fill in just trying to figure out what kind of person he was and how he related to others. Hmm. 
It's interesting. That, you know, I work, of course, for a university press, and, and um, I, I liked reading about uh, Swift's uh, ambivalence uh, towards academia and, and, and scholarship. <laughs> well, uh, academia in his day was very different from ours. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the subjects that we would expect were not taught, no science, no math, no history. The only literature was in the form of Latin and Greek grammar. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. though he happened to be very good at that, he kind of blew off the rest. Yeah, never had any respect for it. Some things never change. <laughs> um, to, to what extent uh, do you think um, religion informs Swift's life and, and writing beyond those that were the product? Well, that's a, another mystery. Um, I was just at a Swift conference in Dublin, which was hosted by St. Patrick's Cathedral on the 300th anniversary of his installation as dean. Uh, in his role as a clergyman, he was extremely conscientious, uh, but he did believe that the established Church of England and the Church of Ireland was um, pretty much the same thing, was necessary to preserve social order because uh, when the Puritans took over, there was a bloody civil war. What he actually believed in the, in, in the way of doctrine is much less clear. He was certainly not a secret atheist, but he was so skeptical about everything else it's impossible to think he didn't have some doubts about his faith. And he wrote down more than once in his private notes, uh, you can't be blamed for what your reason leads you to think so long as you never tell anyone. <laughs> so I suspect he was actually somewhat like Pascal, the was French say. mathematician and religious thinker, uh, who said, God is a hidden God, uh, Deus absconditus, it is in Latin, uh, a God who is no longer in touch with us, and it's a leap of faith to believe in him. Uh, I think Swift was probably like that. Yeah. And uh, possibly the wit of, of Pascal's wager would have appealed to him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he knew that book. Yeah, yeah. And what about his, his, his relationship with politics, particularly his relationship with Queen Anne? Well, it was not a relationship with Queen Anne. That was uh, his problem. Uh, when he got to England, it was just when the modern political parties were forming. Uh, Up until then, the monarch would appoint whoever he or she liked as the cabinet, but it was becoming clear that it ought to be the majority party in Parliament that would provide the Prime Minister and and the rest of his colleagues. So when a party would lose an election, there was an enormous tectonic shift in the political landscape. Uh, Swift was a Tory uh, though the Whigs in his day were not what we would consider liberal, but um, they did have a different agenda, one of which was to fight an enormous, expensive war to gain a world empire. And um, so long as the Tories were in power, he was a right-hand man of the leading politicians. He was their spokesman. Uh, most of what he wrote is not what we would think of as literature at all. It's um, pamphlets uh, striking a nerve at some current controversy. And all that time, he thought they would reward him in due course by having him appointed a bishop in England. He didn't want to stay in Ireland. His parents had been English. He thought of himself as English. And the bishoprics were appointed entirely by the crown. And Queen Anne was so appalled by what she regarded as the irreverence of his satire, A Tale of a Tub, that she was just determined this man shall never be a bishop. And after she died, uh, by then the Tories had been thrown out of power, And when George I came to the throne, um, his advisors were equally certain that Swift should never be a bishop. So 
uh, although he was loyal to his church, he was never rewarded within it as he knew he deserved to be. Hmm. You know, your last two answers remind me of the great pleasure of reading you, which is that we're reading biographies here, but we're really getting a crash course in the history of religion and politics. How do you think about the, the genres together? Well, that's why I called it uh, Jonathan Swift, His Life and His World. Uh, I think a lot of even excellent biographies give you only a dim sense of what it would have been like to live then and, you know, just what the world felt like so long ago. So... It's not just trying to make sense of long-ago religious controversies that you know, stirred people then, uh, but it's also just knowing what the street life was like and what the smells of London were, which Swift hated, and um, tried to put in a lot of pictures from that time that I hoped would you know, give some kind of life to these long-ago things. Well, I think you're you're successful at that. So congratulations. Thank you. Also, um, you know, by, by by definition, it is a um, an analysis of, of of the output and the, the literary work that he did. But you you know take great pains to say that it isn't literature as we know it today. You know, first of all, I guess it's interesting to think in in, in our current moment what it would be like to have um, uh, clergymen and politicians be writing this kind of agitating uh, pamphleteering. Um, how did you approach the, the work, and how, how should people read Swift today? Well, um, although nobody would read most of those pamphlets cover to cover, they're uh, brilliantly written, and I think by setting up the context of a given controversy and then quoting some of his best lines or paragraphs, I think you do get a sense of his um, tremendous breadth as a writer. Uh, also, most people don't even know he was a poet. He wrote hundreds of poems. Many of them are quite slight or just playful, but some of them are excellent. Uh, the, the masterpiece among them is called Verses on the Death of Dr. Swift, which uh, imagines the gossip that people will exchange after he's gone, <laughs> none of which is very kindly, uh, full of self-knowledge. Uh, and um, I think... I quoted enough from the poems all the way through to get a sense of a really lively imagination that uh, is not just uh, the narrative of Gulliver's Travels. I think those those verses are are wonderful, and and um, I, I think everyone should should uh, uh, take up that practice of of, of of imagining the gossip upon your death. It's a very <laughs> healthy way of reaching self knowledge. I think <laughs> very very nice. What, what what do you think um, is his most underrated work, um, and uh, and 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 why? Well, I think I suppose the tale of a tub because um, he thought it was his most brilliant. Samuel Johnson, who very much disliked Swift, said somebody else must have written it. It was so good. Uh, But it's a satire on what he regards as abuses in religion uh, in defense of the Anglican middle way. And uh, it's very bookish, very congested. It feels very old-fashioned to um, non-specialist readers. So it's it's neglected in a sense because it, I shouldn't say deserved to be, but um, was bound to be. Whereas when he wrote Gulliver's Travels, he knew he was doing something fresh. Uh, I stumbled on a remark by uh, Stevenson that when he thought of Treasure Island, he said, it seemed to me as original as sin. And I think Gulliver's Travels had um, no real ancestor. There, there were other mock travels, but not believable fantasy ones. I think he makes it come 
gives it gives it a kind of reality that is quite extraordinary and keeps it fresh. Mm-hmm. So I think it's not neglected and never has been because it's rightly recognized as his masterpiece. Mm-hmm. You've taught uh, Swift. How, how tough has that been? Are, are, are students delighted or are they uh, find him hard to reach? Um, well, th- those those two works, that and the modest proposal, are um, are easy to teach, mm-hmm. and many many people have been impressed by those. Uh, I just happened to read um, his first name, David Wong's um, memoir, uh, "Strange Chinese American Boyhood," and eventually becoming a celebrity chef, and. When he was kicking around in community college in Florida, somebody assigned him Swift's modest proposal, and it knocked him out. He, th- hmm. he thought, "Wow, this is amazing! You know, maybe I could write. Hmm. Um, it can still do that to people." Hmm. Better that it inspired his writing than his uh, taste as a chef. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thought. Uh, in fact, it's still so kind of outrageous if you don't know what it is, because it, after all, uh, sort of solemnly proposes dealing with the economic problems in Ireland by eating babies. Right. Uh, Peter O'Toole, the actor, 20 or 30 years ago, um, was invited to speak at the reopening of the famous Dublin Theatre, and deadpan, he read the modest proposal without saying what it was, and people in the audience began getting up and walking out. They were so disgusted by it. <laughs> Are you a, a secret foodie? Is that why you're reading this? No, this not at all. I, just, I heard him on NPR, and he just sounded like such an interesting guy. Uh-huh. Um, and I certainly had a lot of Asian-American students who have all kinds of stories to tell about their parents' difficulties with acculturation. Mm-hmm. I, just, I felt like reading it. Mm, interesting. You know, I, I forget who said this, but uh, it's a quote that I've been carrying around with me for a long time, that, that satire is the privilege of a society in decline. Um, do you buy into that, and do you think um, that, um, that satire thrives in certain eras and political uh, climates than others? Well, satire thrives by um, mocking things that take themselves seriously. Um, so it might be, I suppose, you know, the great... Roman satirists were also criticizing a culture that was probably starting to decline. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, many people think of the second half of the 19th century as a kind of heyday of the American national pride and consciousness, but that's when Mark Twain was writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he coined the, fr- the expression the gilded age, mm-hmm. you know, gilt but not really gold. Mm-hmm. And Swift is actually a great deal like Twain, I think a, a disappointed idealist. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because Human beings fall so far short of what they should be that he writes satire. It's not just, you know, um, mockery for its own sake. Right. That the, that's the, uh, the, the the sort of um, emotional tenor of of, 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 the, of his work as well, that you really you do, you do feel that grave sort of moral disappointment, um, and, and, it, and it does have an emotional tug to it. You also um, write that, um, that uh, Swift... Uh, worked with many masks and, and, and thrived on, on playfulness with this kind of magnetic charisma. And it made me think about our, um, you know, contemporary satirists like maybe John Stewart or, or a parodist like, like Colbert in, in, in that report. Do you think that, that, um, um, that there is a, uh, uh, a kind of updating of that, of, that, of that spirit of satire in, in these current figures? 
Yeah, I would say that. I would say both both Colbert and Stewart, um, absolutely. And if Swift had had access to the media that they do, I think he would have loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, he was a brilliant sort of performer, uh, much like Twain again. So, sure, he would have loved TV. Right. And, you know, Bob, you've, by the nature of your work, you, you um, we associate now Tocqueville, Rousseau, and, 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 and Swift. Do you have a, a sense of what makes somebody great? Uh, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, deserving of a biography 300 years later. Um, no, I think it's it's always sui generis. Somebody with no parent advantages, uh, or in Tocqueville's case, somebody born an aristocrat and with all possible advantages, but they always, at least the ones that interest me, grow up as outliers in some sense. Hmm. Um, seeing the culture. Uh, with a cold eye because in some ways they feel excluded by it or um, offended by it. In Tocqueville's case, uh, members of his family had had their heads chopped off uh, in the guillotine, uh, but he came to see that democracy was absolutely inevitable and even probably ethically correct, though all his personal values were those of the old Ancien Regime. So it gave him a very interesting standpoint to think, what is democracy? And the reason he came to America was France kept having revolution after revolution, and we didn't, and he wanted to know what made it so stable here. Hmm. Um, So he was an outsider even in his own culture, and then he was doubly an outsider, uh, speaking pretty good but not perfect English, interviewing backwoods hermits and um, Sam Houston and whoever he might meet, very open-minded, curious guy. So um, I felt very a very attractive personality. Uh, but right now I'm writing a book about William Blake, yes. and he shared with Rousseau, if nothing else, having never gone to school for one single day, totally self-taught, and that really gave him a perspective on their culture. Mm-hmm. You also, uh, you know, d- describe. Swift of having, you know, probing lucid intelligence, but you used a very interesting phrase that it had a resolute character. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about what you meant by that. Um, I suppose it's just a blanket term, but he was fearless. Um, two different times he published works for which a 300-pound reward was offered if the author could be identified. Um, that's an enormous amount. Uh, and uh, it became gradually known who it was, but he covered his tracks so carefully they could never get any written evidence on him, so um, they ended up having to leave him alone. Mm-hmm. But he really felt like he might, might even be risking his life, and he would not back down. Uh, there's even a story of somebody who had been a boy when Swift was a young man at the diplomat's household, um, had been in a sort of uh, like a taxi, a boat that uh, they'd engaged to go down the Thames to where this kid lived. And the boatman was drunk and uh, almost got into a physical fight with Swift. And this kid, years later, wrote to Swift and said, I'll never forget how coolly you just stood up to that man and um, you know forced him to do what we, what we needed. Hmm. Uh, yeah, there was a kind of courage in Swift, I think, in all aspects of life. Hmm. If you had the chance to, to meet him, today? What, w- what would you ask him? <laughs> uh, if I met him, he would be asking the questions, and <laughs> they would be either needling or baffling, and it, he would be auditioning me uh, to see whether I would be allowed to stay on as an acquaintance. Uh-huh. 
<laughs> no, I wouldn't get to question him at all. <laughs> Somehow I, I think you'd pass. <laughs> well, it's been a, a, a pleasure having this conversation. Thank you for taking the time and, and, and sharing even more insights about the, the writing of this uh, wonderful biography. On oh, John absolutely. Fisman. Thank you for inviting me. Okay. Okay. Goodbye. <laughs>